The following episode contains mentions of two mass casualty events, one in the United States on September 11, 2001, and the other in Norway on July 22, 2011. Please use discretion. I thought I could uh, share with you why I got involved in the Foreign Service to begin with, if you're interested. That would be wonderful. I was a high school exchange student to this little tiny town in Denmark for a year. Uh, so I was 17, and um, about six months into my stay of a year, a new American ambassador uh, to Denmark arrived. And I watched, he held a press conference, and uh, he had criticized the Danish government in his press conference. It was at a time when inside NATO, uh, Greece was part of it, and they, there was a military junta that was running Greece. And the Danes were, um, you know, true to their democratic principles, they were kind of holding their distance from the Greek government uh, inside NATO. And the American position was, well, they're NATO ally, we need them. So the ambassador criticized the Danes on that. So I wrote the, the new ambassador a letter. And in my 17-year-old way, I said, well, welcome to Denmark. I've been here for six months. Isn't it nice? And I like watching the TV and there are no commercials. And by the way, I noticed that you criticized the Danish government just after, after arriving. Isn't that a little bit like walking up to somebody you don't know and criticizing the tie they have on? Uh-huh. Well, two weeks or so later, the telephone rings in the house the, in the family that I live. And my uh, Danish mother comes to me breathlessly and says, the American embassy is on the phone. <laughs> so I took the call and it was the executive assistant to the ambassador inviting me in to talk. Wow. So I got a day off of uh, school. I was, uh, took the train into Copenhagen and went in and this uh, man who was probably in his late 60s, he was a political appointee, which means that it was under Richard Nixon. So Nixon had, this guy was a, a real estate magnate from Southern California. But very nice man. And basically, I think his idea was to say, well, young, sit me down and say, well, young man, in the real world, things are like this. And, uh, and we started this conversation. And I remember him saying, well, that's the problem. You know, you mentioned no, no commercials. That's the problem with socialism. Uh, <laughs> you know, in a socialist country, even if you don't have a TV or, or uh, you know, you have to pay for it. And I said, well, actually, in Denmark, that's not the way it works. If you have a a black and white TV, you pay a certain amount. If you have three TVs, you pay more. If you have a color TV, you pay more. If you don't have a TV, you don't pay. And he said, you know, that was a, a revelation to him. So, uh, but it was a, a real turning point, point in my life. I thought it was the first time it occurred to me that you could be an American, continue to be an American, represent your country abroad. Uh, so ever since then, I had on my sights to join the American Foreign Service. Welcome to Crossing North, a podcast where we learn from Nordic and Baltic artists, scholars, and community members to better understand our world, our communities, and ourselves. Coming to you from the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at the University of Washington in Seattle, I'm your host, Colin Joya Connors. Jay Bruns is an affiliate instructor and advisory board member of the Scandinavian Studies Department at the University of Washington. Jay is also the senior climate policy advisor to the Washington State Insurance Commissioner. 
Jay Bruns had a 25-year career as a Foreign Service officer in the U.S. State Department. He represented the United States in Norway, Canada, Germany, Japan, and Trinidad and Tobago. His last job in the Foreign Service was as the U.S. Special Negotiator for Conflict Diamonds, and he worked with Congress to pass the Clean Diamond Trade Act of 2003. Before that, from August 2001 to December 2002, Jay served as Chargé d'Affaires, or Acting Ambassador, for the United States in Norway, which means he had only been Acting Ambassador in Norway for one month before the events of September 11th. Former visiting lecturer of Danish Christian Nesbø and I interviewed Jay in 2018 about his experience in Oslo during those pivotal days and their aftermath. I was acting ambassador, which means, uh, yeah, I went out as chargé d'affaires, which in English means uh, in charge of affairs or acting ambassador. Yeah. How did so, you get uh, How did you get that gig? Uh, how good, were you appointed to to that? Uh, when I was leaving the White House. Uh, uh, the National Security Council, I was... We should step back a little bit. <laughs> How do you get that gig? <laughs> uh, yeah, in in the Foreign Service, uh, there are all kinds of different jobs you can have uh, moving up the, the ladder as an American diplomat. And uh, one, you know, rather sought-after job is to have a stint in the National Security Council in the White House. So I put my name in for that at one point and uh, was very honored to be chosen. So for about a year and a half, a little longer than that, I worked in the Clinton White House in the National Security Council. And you may recall they created a National Economic Council. So I was actually in both. And then uh, was uh, stayed in the White House complex right through the transition, which is a hmm. really weird, interesting thing to to watch as the U.S. government, you know, transfers, peacefully transfers power from one elected uh, president to the next. And everybody in that White House complex leaves except for a very small number of people, including the the career people who had been in the National Security Council. I, career, I mean, you know, the intelligence agencies, the career diplomats, civilian DOD, and the military. Right. This is rather different from how it's done in, in Scandinavian countries where the top people in the different ministries, of course, change, but all the all the workers on the floor in the different departments and ministries, they stay on and are believed to be able to faithfully conduct the, the policies of the, the changing people in power. What, which of those two systems do you think work the best? Well, our system is not vastly different, I would say, uh, because in the ministries, in, in our uh, departments, for example, um, there is a course of change when governments uh, change. Um, uh, but but the, the career people stay on. And uh, But the difference is that in uh, Europe generally and also in Japan, the career people um, go right up to the, like the second level or third level, whereas in the United States, like in the State Department, when a, there is a transition, it's not uh, probably the Deputy Secretary of State, the number two, is a uh, political person, and then there are seven undersecretaries, and quite a few of them, if not all of them, are political, hmm. and then Assistant Secretary. So the change at the top is, is definitely bigger um, than the change at the top in, in Europe or Japan. Right, okay. But, yeah. Right. Can, can we talk a little bit about what what um, what affairs did you work on when you sat on the National Security Council under Clinton? 
I, I was director for international economic relations, so I worked a lot on trade policy, which is what I had done a lot of in my prior career up in, up until then. Mostly in Japan, is that right? Uh, there was or a lot that had to do with Japan. I also focused on other things, uh, trade policy with regard to sugar at the time was a big uh -huh. deal. I'll never forget there was one National Security Council meeting. I was reminded of it today because I was reading some papers from uh, some of my students and read one on whaling. And um, at that time, there was a very popular American television show called West Wing uh, that really did do pretty well at describing what life was like inside the West Wing, obviously with uh, a lot more embellishment. But, mm -hmm. but um, I remember we had a National Security Council meeting in the West Wing. And so the, the, all the participants were there, including Madeleine Albright, who was Secretary of State at the time. And she looked around the table. We were working down the agenda. And uh, she looked around the table and she said, well, uh, did, did you watch uh, West Wing last oh night? And God. almost everyone had. <laughs> and what was so interesting was the next point that we were talking about was Japan and whaling. Oh, my goodness. And she said, and on the West Wing program last night, the night before, uh, the subject had been Japan and whaling. That is incredible. And so she kind of laughed and uh, said, well, life imitates art. <laughs> right. Yeah, and, and it's it so often d does, right? And with that show, so many of the things that were discussed there was inspired by policies of the Clinton administration. Exactly. Many, there was like an overlap of people between the show and the administration. There were some people who were advising on that show who had just come from the administration. I do remember that. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That is fascinating. <laughs> yeah. So after the the transition to the George W. Bush presidency, you were appointed acting ambassador to Norway. Exactly. How how does that happen? Uh, it is in in the U.S. Foreign Service. You basically it's kind of like the military. Uh, it's arranged like the military. You start as the equivalent of a second lieutenant in the officer ranks, and then you work your way up. Uh, and by that time, I'd worked my way up to the equivalent of a one-star general. Hmm. So inside the Foreign Service, you are applying for jobs at your level, doing something you want to do. And uh, the, I had there were num numerous opportunities, but I really wanted to go back to Scandinavia. And actually, Denmark was one of the uh, choices. So uh, it was, uh, but I put my name in the hat for both Denmark and Norway, and was uh, offered the job to go out as it would have been as. Um, the number two, uh, but because there was no uh, Senate-confirmed ambassador at the time, I went out as as the acting ambassador and stayed in that position uh, through 2002 or into 2002. As acting ambassador? Right. And then did they then appoint an actual ambassador? Yes, is that how a it new works? ambassador then came and, and so I helped him make the transition, uh -huh. yes. That was? That was in 2002. Right. And those were very consequential years, both uh, at home here in the U.S. and in Scandinavia as well. It was very interesting. To I arrived in uh, Oslo uh, summer of uh, in August of 2001 and uh, had lots of uh, different things to take care of. And um, professionally, <coughs> one of the big things was there was a big election right then in Norway. The <laughs> uh, then prime minister was Jens Stoltenberg. Yeah. Uh, but in uh, early September, there was an election, and actually his uh, competitor, uh, Shell Magna Bolnevik, who had also been prime minister before, he won again over Stoltenberg. So um, I was kind of thinking that 
when I got there, you know, lots of stuff. I was kind of just gotten used to uh, getting to know the staff and, and the lay of the land and had seen through this election and thought that things were going to get a, a little quiet. That was on the uh, 10th of September. Uh, it didn't turn out to be that quiet. No. Can, can you talk us through that, that day? Yes. How, how did you find out what happened? It was, uh, I had, like I say, was, uh, was finally uh, uh, relaxed a bit. And so I uh, uh, went down the street to get a haircut, middle of the day, and my cell phone rang. And it was the administrative assistant, executive assistant in the embassy. And she said that uh, there was a report that the World Trade Center had just been, that a, a plane had flown into the World Trade Center. Mm -hmm. And I asked her, was it terrorism? She said, oh, nobody's saying that. So I said, okay. And 20 minutes later, she called again to say a second plane has flown into the World Trade Center. So mm -hmm. I basically, my haircut was done. I ran back to the embassy. Because of the time difference, it was kind of toward the end of the day. Right. Um, and people were very concerned, obviously. And sometimes they had children in schools and stuff like that. So I had everyone, uh, let everyone go home, uh, encouraged everyone to go home. Um, and then we all kind of, uh, kind of focused, kind of transfixed on... Uh, on what was going on in the United States. We had a big concern in Oslo because our embassy at the time was considered the most vulnerable, exposed, uh, because it had no what we called setback, no, um, what's it called? Like distance from the street? No distance from the street. Right. It was a, a pretty major street called Dramansvein, then a sidewalk, and then the building. So. The uh, security team that we dealt with that uh, talked among ourselves that evening. We were very concerned about that. You were concerned about that there would be an attack on U.S. embassies around the world? Yes, we certainly all had experienced that. I, I was in an embassy that had uh, come under attack before, and uh, uh, it was in Trinidad and Tobago. Uh, certainly terrorism attacks had killed some of my colleagues in Beirut and uh, mm -hmm. Nairobi, Kenya. Mm -hmm. So this was something that was very well known in the diplomatic service that embassies are, are vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So what, what happened in the, in the days right after Right. Yeah. Uh, so the n very next morning, I was called into the foreign ministry, and uh, I sat around with a group, uh, the very senior foreign, the number two person in the foreign ministry, and some of his staff, which, by the way, included Koda Os, who is the current U.S. Amba or, uh, Norwegian ambassador to the United States. Wow. And um, the head person said, "You know, we know you're a big country." the United States, uh, we've been thinking all night long about how we can support you. We know you may not take advantage of this, but we have some ideas. And he ticked through about 10 really practical, smart ideas that would have been very interesting for us. He said, for example, we've got a lot of Norwegian flagged vessels that are in and around Manhattan. If you want them, they're yours. We have sniffer dog teams that have been involved with horrific plane crashes. Uh, we can get them to the United States as soon as we can, and you can, you can, we're, we'd be happy to help out. And ticked through a bunch of ideas like this. And I said to him, thank you very much. I will convey those to my government. I was quite sure at the time that in the United States, we were so focused on what had just happened that we weren't going to take any of this very, very kind offer. We mm. uh, weren't going to take it up. But I said to them, you know, here our country team has been talking about 
our security here, and we're very concerned about it given this history that I just talked about. Mm -hmm. And we're wondering if there's something that could be done to help protect us at the embassy. And literally that evening, that evening of the 12th of September, uh, all night long they moved jersey barriers, which are these concrete barriers, around the embassy to give us that setback. And in so doing, they closed off one of the two main uh, lanes of this major thoroughfare into Oslo. Hmm. Uh, and it remained that way for about a year and a half. So that's the way the Norwegian government and the people of Norway were quite supportive and very supportive uh, after after that happened. Right. That was that was September September twelfth. Sem September twelfth. Yeah. Uh, and then in the intervening days, I mean, it just got really very uh, much more interesting. One of the things that happened was right across the street from our embassy there, which was next to the uh, uh, the palace in in Oslo. Uh, people just just started to leave uh, notes and flowers and candles and start this uh, vigil. And the 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 number of flowers and candles and notes just grew and grew and grew and grew. It was really, it was this unbelievable outpouring. Mm. And in fact, um, they let it stay up for about two weeks. And then one day the cleaning crew came and cleaned it all away and it started up again. Mm. Another one of my most strong memories from that time was in relatively soon after the government of Norway and the people of Norway and the, the, the church actually uh, held a vigil in the Oslo Cathedral uh, for the victims of 9-11. And uh, it was absolutely full, as you might imagine. And uh, my then wife and I were uh, given a place of honor to seated uh, very much in front. And I'll just never forget that uh, Jens Stoltenberg, who was still the prime minister, came up to us. He and his wife came up and conveyed the, the condolences on behalf of the Norwegian people to the United States. And the way he did it and she did it was just, it was so moving and so, there was just so much humanity there. Uh, it was almost, not, I've never experienced anything right. like that since. Did you, have a, did you have a chance to give those greetings uh, to the administration in Washington, D.C.? Yes, I definitely did. Uh, you know, th that's a job of a diplomat is to make sure that communications are clear and when communications come from the head of the uh, head of government or head of state from the country, you make sure. And so uh, the thing is, at that time still, obviously, U.S. government was very much preoccupied with, with what had just happened. As mm -hmm. you recall, the Pentagon had been attacked. There were uh, there were rumors at the time that uh, Capitol might be attacked. And the first day or two, the first day, there were concerns that the State Department would also have been attacked. So the people, my colleagues who I would normally go to and get help from, if there's a crisis in the country I'm in, they were in crisis. So uh, we were really right, operating right. much more independently than normally would be the case. How did it change your job for those the next one and a half, two years? Yeah, it it went from uh, what I thought would be uh, you know uh, dealing with a uh, a, a very um, uh, helpful country on all kinds of things international to it was all about 9-11 and the aftermath. For example, uh, almost immediately I spent a lot of time with, uh, I remember having a, a lunch for uh, Norwegian NGOs, non-government organizations that were involved with Afghanistan. And uh, they knew it was very clear that the United States was going to invade Afghanistan. 
and uh, you know the governments of NATO. That one of the more interesting things I think that happened just in the immediate aftermath is, you know, Norway is a NATO country, mm -hmm. and uh, there is a a clause, Article Five, which says an attack against one is an attack against all. Mm -hmm. And since the founding of NATO in 1947, it had never been invoked, but it was invoked in in September of uh, 2011. In large part, I think, because of Norway and a few other countries that pushed very hard inside NATO to say, one of us has been attacked, we should invoke Article 5. Right. It's the only right. time it's ever been invoked. Uh, but I, th what I thought was very interesting was groups that would normally not be very welcoming to a military solution, that is to say, people who actually had people on the ground or were working in Afghanistan, they, they understood why why Afghanistan? I'm not sure later that they understood why Iraq, but uh, they mm -hmm. certainly understood why Afghanistan. Right. Yeah. And definitely in Scandinavia, there was, uh, there was an understanding from a majority of the people and also the political parties as to why uh, an invasion of Afghanistan seemed important or necessary. Um, it's gone on for a lot of years now, and that's, yes. a, that's a whole different uh, discussion. Can mm -hmm. I go back just just a, just a little bit? You came into the White House with a Democratic president. Yes. And you stayed over in the, in the transition, and then in which George W. Bush, obviously a, a Republican president. And it was a Republican president who uh, appointed you acting ambassador. How did you feel this, the, that shift or was it a problem for you to be representing a, a more Republican president or how, how does that? Well, uh, you know, that's the one thing that I think is still remains in the U.S. Foreign Service and mm -hmm. that is that when people join, they may have their own political positions. Um, they generally have uh, keep them to themselves. Right. And because in, you know, I was a career diplomat for 25 years. So right. I started under Jimmy Carter and uh, worked for presidents of both uh, just right along the way. And uh, people think that they're doing the work of uh, the United States without for, for America without uh, taking political sides. Mm -hmm. Now, one personally can might, uh, might feel more affinity to one president or another or one party or another. But generally, in my experience, a lot of people, you d didn't know if they were Republicans or Democrats, or they might not, like I did not choose a political party until I left government because I just felt I wanted to be an independent and, and uh, not be part of, uh, part of that system. And I think that's pretty, pretty strongly felt among my former colleagues. Right. Um, you know, the thing is, if if you get pretty senior and you get associated with some kind of policy that is right. from one president, the likelihood in the next administration of having a position uh, doing the same kind of work is probably kind of low. Uh, so, you know, especially for if people you know, personally didn't want to be as closely associated with a, a president, they could find a job somewhere in the foreign service that was much more apolitical. Right. And frankly, there are, are people who did very, very well just representing the United States all the way through. I think of Nick, Nicholas Burns, who was uh, a, a wonderful career foreign service officer who made it all the way to our uh, undersecretary of state for political affairs. Right. Or, yeah. or Bill Burns, uh, William Burns, who was, un, uh, who was deputy secretary of state. Both of them were totally career. Both of them had unbelievably high-level positions in both Democratic and Republican administrations mm -hmm. and maintained that integrity that you hope 
right. hope and wish for. There's been um, obviously these days criticisms of uh, the lack of support for diplomacy and the State Department now under Trump, but also under uh, Barack Obama. Um, I'm thinking about the book of uh, by Ronan Farrow, uh, talking about how more and more foreign policy seems to be directed from the White House and not from the State Departments and the diplomats out in the field and, and using that specific site-specific knowledge. Do you see that as well? There has always been a tension, I think. I mean, uh, career diplomats didn't worry too much about that because it was very clear to us from the beginning that we implement the policy. We don't make it because the, that that making foreign policy is the unique realm of the president and uh, whoever he chooses. Now, mm -hmm. historically, we career diplomats liked the idea that uh, the president would defer to and hand that over to his, his secretary of state to help him create and then implement the policy. Over time, certainly, and depends on which White House, but yes, uh, you, you certainly felt the, uh, the pull. The White House sometimes through the National Security Council would try to run foreign policy more than and, and sometimes try to do it over the wishes of the State Department and the Secretary of State. Certainly that was true in the uh, Nixon era with the Henry mm -hmm. Kissinger. And um, so there's always been that tension. And certainly, I know under Barack Obama, President Obama, there was a lot of, I think there were a lot of special envoys. Uh, so uh, kind of uh, run out of, well, State Department as well as, uh, as, well as the, the White House. So it's, a, it's an ongoing tension. Mm -hmm. I would say that today, uh, I've never seen it quite like this, where the White House has, the President has uh, very specifically tried to gut the State Department, the career people, and and has not uh, spent very much time supporting uh, his foreign policy through career American diplomats. Right, and seems also to to undercut his uh, secretaries of state, where you know they sit in a meeting with some foreign power for days, and then they come out with some sort of agreement or understanding or a path forward, and then the president tweets something. And that whole work is is done because he's in in charge. It certainly and happened with Rex Tillerson. Yeah, it, it certainly did. And and you 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 can't help to think like why would the foreign powers then even negotiate with the secretaries of state or diplomats if they feel like they have no weight? They'll and that has been a debate in the past. I mean, even when I was in the, the Foreign Service, it's much more, you know, if there is some kind of special channel that goes outside and the, the negotiators don't know about the channel or don't know what's being discussed in the channel, that under undermines what they're trying to do. So, yes, you're exactly right. Uh, we all know in order to conduct an effective diplomacy, the the people on the other side of the table have to know that the positions being put forward are ones that have the support of uh, the president on down. Because mm -hmm. if not, then, as you say, it's, it leads to ineffective dip diplomacy. Mm. Christian told me that you were also in Norway in 2011. I was not in Norway in 2011. My, my son was, but uh, it, you know, I obviously watched that play out the uh, the attack on Utoya in the well government uh, headquarters first, and then Utoya, and and just really felt, as you know, that was one of the worst terrorist attacks inside in Europe 
or ever, uh, the biggest uh, loss of life in Norway since uh, World War II, uh, 69 kids at this camp uh, on an island outside of Oslo uh, for the Labour Party youth uh, were, were gunned down. And this after, uh, this lone gunman, this uh, Anders Breivik, set a, a truck bomb to explode in downtown, killing 12 people and injuring a lot of people as well. So horrific, kind of almost inexplicable uh, attack on uh, the Norwegian society and culture and uh, political system. I was just really moved by how the people of Norway and the government of Norway handled that. And in particular, I remember reading the speech that uh, Jens Stoltenberg, the prime minister, gave. And it was such a heartfelt speech. And one of the th messages was, we're all humans here. We're not going to let this dehumanize us. Uh, and he quoted a survivor of the attack, a teenager, who said something like, if uh, one man can do this much damage with such hatred, just think about what we all can do together with love. It was such a wounding time for the Norwegians and the world. And the way they handled it with uh, such grace and such compassion uh, was really moving. You know, Norway's a small country. I uh, was reading that almost one quarter of all Norwegians either knew somebody who died or knew somebody who knew somebody who died. And the prime minister, he had friends who were, who were killed that day. And yet he gave this uh, such a compassionate human speech. I uh, just really that's always really struck with me. I actually wrote him a note, uh, which uh, was acknowledged, uh, not by him directly, but, you know, thank you very much for your, for your thoughts, because I was so moved by how they handled it. Mm -hmm. But your son was in Oslo at the time? I have a son who, uh, who was at the time about 11 or 12 and mm -hmm. was visiting friends and uh, had been right uh, in the area where the truck bomb went off in the downtown government quarter uh, the day before. So it was a, a little bit more, I, f I felt a little more, uh, even more than uh, normally normal because uh, I had family there at the time. Yeah, of course. What was your son's experience? He, uh, we talked about it. I remember when I picked him up from the airport a few days later, he just talked about how it really riveted the, uh, the country and everybody was, that's all they were talking about. Yeah, you know, yeah. that's, you could imagine from a 12-year-old's perspective, uh, it was really quite uh, uh, unnerving, I think, but uh, certainly has not stopped him from traveling around the world. <laughs> yeah, but that, I mean, 12 is a, it's a special age because you're starting to figure out who you are as a person and you're starting to figure out what the rest of the world is and to form opinions about things. And you lived through attacks on embassies and lost friends. What does a father want to teach his son in a moment like that? Uh, I think that the kind of message that uh, Jens Stoltenberg was giving is a kind of message that I hope my children, and, I, and I'm quite certain knowing what they do and who they are, um, that they do. And that is they they um, get out in the world and embrace it and uh, welcome it. And they, they know how to be careful when you need to be careful. But they're out a lot, uh, two who are... I headed uh, on a sailboat to Colombia right now, and uh, one of them started a rock climbing business in Palestine and uh, lived in Ramallah for three years and opened the first indoor 
rock climbing gym and has taught 4,000 Palestinians how to rock climb. Uh, the youngest was a high school exchange student in Italy for a year and has traveled quite a bit. So uh, they know how to get out and embrace mm -hmm. the world, which, of course, I'm very, very pleased with. Right. And, it, and, of course, it's hard not to make the comparison when you talk about a horrific attack like this in Scandinavia. And attacks like this are not something we're used to in Scandinavia. It will exactly right. It was such an outlier. And as you know, uh, if you go around and look at the statistics, I mean, statistically, Scandinavia is among the safest places in the world for, and by just about any measure. You know, I never f fear having my children travel to Scandinavia. In fact, you know, from the United States, where it's uh, higher crime rates and all of that, it's um, you know, you can look at it uh, as as having them go to a, a place that statistically anyway is safer. Right. And one of the things Stoltenberg said in his speech, but we, will, we cannot let an attack like this change who we are. We need to still trust each other and not change the way that we live our lives. And I feel like that is a big um, difference between the Scandinavian countries and, and the U.S. You know, you're usually not taught stranger danger in, in Norway. Did you feel the same way when you were living there? I, exactly right. I did, did feel that, uh, I mean, it, it it's, uh, feels very safe, obviously, and uh, culturally, um, people don't want to put up those uh, barriers and, and walls. And uh, I just watched it with my children who I put into the public schools. They got to, you know, walk to school on their own and throw snowballs and uh, go to the store afterward. And um, they had so much more freedom than they did in a suburb of Washington, D.C., because uh, that was the norm, and that's what you want. I think that's what you want for your kids, so mm -hmm. definitely felt that. There's a, there's a new U.S. embassy in Oslo now, isn't there? Yes. Um, that was redesigned with security in mind? Any embassy being built today is going to have security uh, top of mind. I uh, it, Kind of ironic because I remember after 9-11, one of my jobs was to try to help find a new area, new place for the embassy. I was saddened by the fact that the one that we had, we had to give up because it was so convenient. You could just walk down the street to the uh, foreign ministry. And this one is quite a bit further out of town. But I did, do remember visiting it as Charger, as acting ambassador, and you know, making some preliminary commentary about how it would fit into our requirements. But so any embassy around the world that's being built today has a lot of uh, security. That's kind of almost the number one thing that goes into it. And that's just the way that is a little bit a fact of life, but it looks like a very beautiful embassy. I have to say it doesn't, but it would, you know, has the capability of being well protected. Mm -hmm. How did 9-11 affect Norway's response in, in 2011 to Oh, I'm not sure that there was a, a, a direct relationship. I wouldn't think that there there was. I think the uh, Norwegian response to Utøya was is a typical Nordic response, I think. You know, rather than be driven by fear, they... I think uh, all five Nordic countries think hard about that, and, and they've, you know, fought against uh, very strong odds, and uh, uh, tough, resourceful people who have uh, this strong sense of humanity. So I, I'm not sure that anything there was driven. I, I don't feel that the Norwegian was response in any way was was driven by a response from 9-11. I do think that there was some commentary about, well, the Norwegians did it differently from uh, the response in the United States, which was maybe more reactive and more 
Let's uh, you know protect ourselves from any and all possibilities from abroad. Yeah. So if you feel that the the Norwegians' response was a really good one, that you were proud to be a lesson for your your sons to learn, was the rebuilding of the embassy and making it much more securely sound. Was that changing who America is? Oh, it's a good question. I. I, I don't second guess the fact that our embassies are, are being built more, you know, much more with safety and security in mind. But I do, uh, I am sad about that. I think that, you know, kind of wish back for another era when the idea of attacking an embassy was pretty unthinkable. And the same is true on all of our institutions. I mean, uh, going into the White House before 9-11 was much different than going into it after. Or, mm-hmm. you know, the, the U.S. Capitol. I mean, when I first went to Washington, D.C., you could just walk in and talk to members of Congress walking down the ha- hallways and things like that. And those days are long gone. Mm-hmm. I mean, I should say Amer- Americans who want to go to their member of Congress's office can still do that, but you can't get really close to the actual Capitol where the chambers are, where they uh, actually vote. Mm-hmm. I think I was in eighth grade in 2001. And so me becoming an adult after 9-11 means that when I read stories about the Icelandic prime minister or other Nordic heads of states, they usually start out with things like, and you could just make an appointment and go right up and meet the person. So from my perspective, the norm feels like, yes, government officials are very hard to get in contact with. There has to be a lot of security. Is is there something that could change that in the future? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I think that American politicians generally like the idea of being relatively ac- accessible, very accessible, uh, but probably under their own terms. You know, it's uh, easier to be accessible when uh, you don't have people uh, who are trying to shout you down or something like that. So I'm not sure where that's going to go. But I mean, I, I think as time goes by and, um, you know, there are, if there are fewer uh, attacks and that kind of thing that, you know, maybe we could we could uh, uh, lessen it. Obviously, there's technology changes all the time and you know, trying to stay ahead of technology is always going to be difficult. Maybe I can ask then about uh, NATO. And you, you mentioned earlier how, how Norway is a member, uh, Denmark is a member. Um, and how the Scandinavian countries were were pushing to invoke that the the fifth year the the musketeer oath of NATO, mm-hmm. right? Norway is a country that also borders with Russia up in the very north north mm-hmm. of the Atlantic uh, circle. There, how how do you see the NATO alliance now with um, the Trump administration and the collaboration over the Atlantic Ocean? Yeah, and I'm I don't follow uh, NATO issues as closely as I probably would like, but I do follow them to some degree. NATO is this really amazing, you know, post World War II effort uh, that the United States uh, was central in. It's a a military alliance uh, of like-minded countries. Um, it started with uh, 
uh, Soviet pressure on Turkey in 1947, mm. and uh, that that helped uh, drive the current NATO countries uh, together. So uh, you rightly pointed out that Norwegians have always been concerned, like the Finns. Uh, the Finns have even more mm-hmm. direct experience with this, I think. But uh, the Norwegians have always been concerned with Soviet and then Russian pressure on uh, Norway, and also they they share a border. I've been taken a bus from that on that border from far north of Norway to Murmansk. Um, so there's a lot of uh, trade and stuff that goes on there. There's a lot of concern that the Norwegians had. Obviously, that's where this, uh, the Soviet submarine fleet uh, left to go to the North Atlantic. And like I say, the Norwegians have been uh, wary and are um, – big supporters of NATO. That's one reason this this guy I keep talking about, Jens Stoltenberg, he's now the Secretary General of right. uh, NATO. So, uh, you know, I've found it uh, somewhat personally disconcerting that uh, the president uh, coming in would question uh, the U.S. Uh, support for Article 5 of NATO, you know, kind of indicating, that well, maybe he would come to the defense of a NATO country, maybe he wouldn't. It would depend on if they would uh, pay up their uh, the make the commitments that they've made uh, financially to support the organization, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, and certainly we're seeing it uh, now. The, the Russians uh, are you know they've uh, annexed uh, Crimea and uh, doing a lot still in Ukraine, and NATO countries are very very worried about that. So uh, it just seems that it's a still a very important necessary uh, institution. It's one of these that we're was created with the help of uh, the U.S., uh, with the strong support and leadership of the U.S. after World War II, and it's one that is, um, at least by uh, by this president, is being questioned, and I think that that hurts it. Hmm. Again, I'm, I'm just thinking about who are we and who is America becoming, um, and that part of our reaction to 9-11 was more security, more precautions, that I feel like sort of a, a narrative of what our reaction is and how we've responded is just, well, uh, the world is a dangerous place mm-hmm. and we need to take real precautions from it. And if that means putting up more security, then that's what we need. But also, you know, I need to have open carry on me because that's the only way you can deal with a uh, more violent world is to arm yourself better. And that also seems to be the strategy of President Trump. We have a nuclear arsenal, so let's use that as a bargaining chip. And so as someone who's worked in the Foreign Service for a long time and dealt with foreign governments, is there is there another way or is there a different narrative or a different way we should be thinking about this? Well, I certainly think that uh, uh, I, I don't ascribe at all to this idea that well, it's a dangerous world out there, so the only thing that we have as an answer is to kind of create our own security in, in our own country. I mean, we know that horrific things happen, like uh, I was living in Connecticut when the Newtown shootings took place. I mean, you can't imagine uh, anything kind of more horrific than that. I per- certainly don't think, just like the leadership of that school and the the local police and everybody else who was involved with that, none of them thinks that it's a good idea to, to, to arm uh, teachers or to, to protect those kids. So um, I do, th- yeah, I think that um, the United States does better when it 
uh, and is it shows more leadership when it uh, goes out in the world as uh, confident and as optimistic and as wanting to help solve problems and and bring people together for those uh, solutions. And it could be. It could be to solve a, a military uh, issue. I think, you know, in a way, you think about the coalition that George H.W. Bush uh, built when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, and he said, this will not stand, and he got 17 countries, I think, signed on, including, by the way, Syria uh, was a member of that coalition of the willing. And I remember watching that unfold, and I think one of the reasons that that military action was so successful under the terms of, that they had, which was to get Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait, was this patient building and of this uh, coalition. So I think, you know, it, it's efforts like that uh, where we are all in it together and we uh, agree together we are much stronger. That's, that's the kind of coalition building and, and working together uh, that, that really solves problems. Much has changed since our interview in 2018. The Norwegian ambassador to the United States is different now. The Prime Minister of Norway is also different, and the President of the United States as well, after a fraught transition of power. Foreign Service Officers Nicholas Burns and William Burns have both returned to serve the United States after periods of retirement. The United States has withdrawn from Afghanistan, and most recently, tensions between Russia and NATO countries have erupted after Vladimir Putin launched a full military invasion of non-NATO member Ukraine. We can only hope that the tenets and the optimism of international diplomacy that Jay worked towards during his time in the Foreign Service will carry us through the challenges ahead. Crossing North is a production of the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at the University of Washington in Seattle. Today's episode was written, edited, and produced by me, Colin Joya Connors. Special thanks to former visiting lecturer of Danish, Christian Nesbø. Today's music was used with permission by Christian Ronard Paulsen. Links to his music can be found in the show notes for this episode or on our website. Visit scandinavian.washington.edu to learn more about the podcast and other exciting projects hosted by the Scandinavian Studies Department. If you are a current or prospective student, consider taking a course or declaring a major. You can find complete course listings for the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at scandinavian.washington.edu. Once again, that's scandinavian.washington.edu.